up our journey through the book of Psalms, we're going to focus in this morning on Psalm 95. And I want to invite you to consider, if you will, uh, this morning, the next few moments, what genuine worship is. What is the nature of genuine worship? And I want you also to also just be thinking, why does it matter? Why does genuine worship matter? What does it change? What does it impact? Why does it matter that we worship not through rituals, not through going through motions, but on a genuine basis? And, and I would give you two reasons to begin with. Number one, that if, and this is an if, if you have a relationship with God to start with, that happens through Christ. If you have that relationship with Christ, genuine worship will deepen your relationship with God. And we're going to see how and why in just a moment. The second thing I would say to you in terms of why does this even matter for us to consider what genuine worship is according to God's word, I would say it will not only deepen your relationship with God, it will deepen your life. You see, how can you possibly and I possibly truly experience the presence of Christ in our life and it not change us? And it not transform the very priorities we live by and how we see life if nothing else, I would say to you, why should we care about genuine worship? He's worth it. He is worthy according to his word. If that alone is enough, let's consider this topic this morning from God's word in Psalm 95. I want you to notice two things in these first seven verses of Psalm 95. First of all, what is the expression of genuine worship? It gives us the expression of it, what it looks like. But secondly, I want you and I to consider what is the heart behind genuine worship because it's not the type of songs you sing or anything you do per se. There's a heart behind genuine worship that matters according to God's word. Let's look and see what it says. Psalm 95, beginning with verse 1, he says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song for the lord is the great god the great king above all gods in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land and then it says once again third time come come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And that's a cool phrase at the end. I'm going to come back to So stay with me. Look at verse 1 to start with. Notice an invitation that you see three times in seven verses. And what's interesting is we're going to see is that in the Old Testament language, it is translated come or the invitation to come and worship on a genuine basis. But there's three different terms used translated the same to give you and I a nuance of what it means to come. The invitation to worship God on a genuine basis. So I want you and I to notice, first of all, that worship according, genuine worship according to God's word is personal. Even when you do it in a corporate setting, it must, if it's going to be genuine, be 
personal. Why do I say that? Look at what he says at the very beginning. Verse 1, he says what? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. It's about who Christ is. It's about Yahweh, the Lord. But the word come there means to take the initiative. It means to make the personal choice to seek the presence of God. Listen, in life, hear me close, God seeks you. He searches out for you. But when it comes to worship, my friend, if we're a believer, a follower of Christ, it's about you seeking him. So when we come to this place, it's not about you and it's not about me. It is about who? Christ and Christ alone. It is about choosing on a personal basis to seek the presence of Christ, seek the presence of God, and we're doing it as a community of faith. And so he says, first of all, come. And that word, again, come, means take the initiative, start the journey. You choose to start the journey. And then he says, let us sing for joy. Now that, that phrase, that I love it because we've already sung it and said it a number of times, that phrase could be understood and is understood as make a joyful noise. You've heard that before. And the emphasis of the words, let us rejoice, let us sing for joy, is not about whether you can carry a tune or not or who's got the best voice. The emphasis of the word is enthusiasm. The emphasis of the word is shouting out for joy. In fact, that phrase, let us sing for joy, is sometimes used in the Old Testament of the crowd of people in the city that is clapping and applauding and screaming and shouting for victory as a king comes back from a victory in battle. Think college football game. Some Now listen, come on, and if you ever go to a college football game with me, I, I'm a Jekyll Hyde. I'll turn into a completely different person, believe me. I go crazy. I try to will my team to win the game, and I just can't help myself. I just get into it, all right? But truth is, if I'm not careful, if we're not careful, we can tend to show more, listen, come on, genuine enthusiasm for a football team or a concert than we do for God. Isn't that amazing? What, what am I trying to say? Genuine worship, number one, is personal. It is you and I personally engaging and pursuing the presence of God in this place and at this time together. It is not spectating. It is not watching. It is not passive. It is personal. And he goes on to say, let us shout aloud. Just in case you didn't get that, he says, let us shout aloud, not quietly shout aloud to the who? To the rock of our salvation. That's another way of saying that Christ, that God is your true security. There is no other place to get security. He is it. He is the true security in your life. So engage him, pursue him, seek him on a personal basis. Don't let this be something you watch, but something you personally engage in when it comes to worship. So what's the point? God's word tells us clearly. Number one, Psalm 95, worship is an expression that is personal. But there's a second piece that I want you to notice in verse 2. Worship, if it is to be genuine, is an expression that is active. And here we go. The second word that's translated come is a different term in the Old Testament to give you and I yet another nuance. After he says, verse 1, come, let us sing for joy. Verse 2, the psalm says, let us come before him. How? With thanksgiving. Always something to be thankful for, right? 
regardless of how tough life gets. There's always plenty to remember and be thankful to God for. So he says, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Now that phrase, let us come in verse 2, means to anticipate his presence. So verse 1, when he says, come, let us sing for joy, make a joyful noise, but come, it means to initiate seeking his presence. Make the personal choice to be engaged. But number 2, verse 2, he says, come, let us anticipate anticipate his presence now listen come on ask yourself the question when you walked into this place this morning or you walk into this place any other sunday morning to come to worship are you truly anticipating the presence of god are you are you listen come on are you still bringing in the stuff you're worried about from life are you anticipating the presence of god because that's the invitation it is active not passive it is worship that is engaged on a personal and active basis let us come before him with thanksgiving and he goes on in verse 2 and says and let us extol him with music we got a singing faith did you notice we have a singing faith when it comes to worship. And he says, let us extol him with music. That, that basically means praise him with your voice and your, your instruments. The music that you and I have. But you and I have got to pay attention, I believe, and not forget that worship is both personal and active. I love how the Message Bible paraphrases these two verses that we just looked at. He says, come, let's shout praises to God. Look at this. Raise the roof for the rock who saved us. He says, let's march into the presence and singing praises, lifting the rafters with our hymns so what's the point the point is number one genuine worship is personal and number two it is something that is active in other words it's not a spectator sport you and i if we're going to worship on a genuine basis we're not showing up and we like the music or don't like the music i prefer this or i prefer that guess what it's not about you and it's not about me when we walk into this place if we're going to worship on a genuine basis we're going to make it about god we're going to make it about Christ. Whether your preferences are met or not on a given Sunday, who cares? I mean, can I be that blunt with you? God doesn't. He wants you to seek his presence on a personal and active basis. And it's not a spectator sport. Sit back and try to, try to impress me if you can. It is about us seeking the presence of God. So he says, come, make the initiative. Take the initiative when you come into this place to worship and then number two, anticipate his presence. Are you doing that when you come and worship? Are we doing that together when we come and worship? Because that's how Psalm 95 defines and describes what genuine worship is. Now, what I also want to remind you just as a background, because I don't have time to deal with it, there are times where worship is contemplative and quiet and meditative and being still before God. There is no question. There are times where worship, genuine worship, is tear-filled and you're asking God to encounter you at your point of distress and need. That is genuine worship. But how it's being described here, friend, is raising the roof. How it is being described in Psalm 95 that we must not forget is that it is a genuine enthusiasm for who Christ is in your life. It is not sitting back and watching everybody else do it. 
but it is a personal and active engagement according to God's word. Now look at the heart behind genuine worship according to God's word. Verses 3 through 5. Look at how this God that we worship is described. I love this language and this imagery. He says, for the Lord, that's the word Yahweh again we've been talking about. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Now look at this key phrase, in his hand. What's in his hand exactly? In his hand, this God who's the great king and the God of all gods, God above all gods, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Do you get the idea? He created it all and it's in his hand. In other words, what is that saying? God is sovereign. So the heart behind worship is a people that embrace, embrace the sovereignty of God. You see it, you understand it, you begin to embrace the fact that he is sovereign over all life. Listen, that's when genuine worship will begin to change your life, not just be something you do. Because I'll leave this place understanding that my God holds all of creation in his hand. Amen. This is a sovereign God that we serve and we love and we worship. We must not forget that. He's not my bellhop. He's not my quick drive through window order. He's my sovereign God that created all of life, including me. We'll come back to that piece in a moment. But he says, you and I must embrace, if we're going to have a heart for genuine worship, embrace the understanding that he's sovereign. Why does that matter? You see, when I truly understand that God is sovereign, that Christ is sovereign in my life and in your life, that he is holding everything in the palm of his hand, when I truly understand that, when I meet challenges in life, it will change how I respond to those challenges. When I have distress in my life, it will change how I view that distress in my life. When I live my life, it will help set a real set of priorities I can live by. You see, the sovereignty of God, if you really embrace it, changes not just how you worship, it changes how you live. It, it, it doesn't stop when you leave this building, right? <laughs> He's still sovereign when you leave this place. And your life can become an act of worship, an action of worship, personal and active as you leave this place as much as when you came to this place. Now look at the very end of the passage. If you've been napping, wake up. This is the best part. Look at what he says. There's that word come again, that invitation. Once again, three times in seven verses, God must want it to us to really engage him in worship. He says, come, let us bow down. Now, verse 1, go back to that. He says, come, let us sing for joy. What does that come mean? It means to take the initiative, let it be personal, make the choice to seek the presence of God when you worship. And then in verse 2, he says, come, let us come before him with thanksgiving. What does that mean? That means you anticipate the presence of God. And then he gets to verse 6 here, and he says, come, let us bow down. What does that mean? That word means and emphasizes sitting in the presence of God and submitting to his lead in your life. Understanding that he is sovereign. 
and trusting that sovereignty when you leave the place that we've come together to worship. I love the, the nuances along the way in the passage here. And he says, come, let us what? Here's the element proof whether you're worshiping or not every time you do it, right? Come on. Bow down and kneel. What does that mean? Give him control. Submit to his lead in your life. You've heard me say this before. Jesus didn't just say, believe in me. What did he say? Follow me. Follow where I'm leading in your life. That's when life changes. That, listen, that's when your faith means something. That's when your faith is a foundation to live upon. When we truly follow the lead of God, of Christ in our life. So look at the very end. I love this. I love how the language is all connected in these, these seven powerful verses. Verse 7, he says, For he is our God. He's saying, here's why we ought to bow down and submit and kneel before him. For he is not only our maker, verse 6, but he is our what? Our God. And then he makes it even more personal. And he describes who we are. And we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Bah, right? You, you, we talked about this before. Sheep are stupid, right? They're notorious for getting in trouble, for messing things up and getting lost and going to all the wrong places, right? This God who holds all of creation in his hand, look at the very last word. He says, we are the flock, well, look at it, under his care. You know what's cool about that phrase? It's the very same word of verse 4 where it says everything is in his hand. What does that mean? The same God who holds all of creation in his hand is the same God who holds your life in his hand. I love it. The same God who's the maker of your life, verse 4, and all of creation is the same God who shepherds you through the mountaintops and valleys. Powerful. It's the same God. So why wouldn't you want to follow his lead? He says, he is the one who is the flock. We are the people. We're the flock under his care. I love how one author summed up this passage we just looked at. He said it this way. Our worship is not centered in what we get out of church edification and inspiration. Our worship is centered in what we give to God. Worship is turning our lives over to him, nothing less. A service of worship, therefore, is a service of what? Surrender. Bow down and kneel is how it ends up. Surrender to him. Give him the lead of your life. So in essence, backing up, there's four traits that we've seen in Psalm 95 in these seven verses that describe and depict what genuine worship truly is. First of all, it's an expression that is both personal and active. Do you, when you come to this place, come on, we all get into this place where we've got to ask the question, right? Are you going through the motions of worship? Or are you actually worshiping? Is it personal and active for you? When you come to this place and we sing 
and we praise him, is it personal and active? Because that's how the Bible describes what genuine worship is. Number two, there's a heart involved. There's a motive behind the expression. And that expression or that heart, if you will, embraces the sovereignty of God. When we worship together, we're among many things affirming the sovereignty of God over our lives. Are you? Are you trusting that sovereignty when you leave this place after we worship? And number four characteristic, it submits to the lead of God, to the lead of Christ. What's your next step of faith that Christ is calling you to take that you've been hesitating to take? Are you allowing Christ to be in the lead of your life? Because ultimately that's the proof in the pudding. That's the proof that you and I have worshiped on a genuine basis. So, let me leave you with the question. Have you been worshiping on a genuine basis? Or have you caught yourself perhaps as a believer going through the motions? Are you and I, when we arrive in this place, seeking his presence and worshiping him on a genuine basis or not? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouraging picture of worship and challenging as well because at times we can make myself included I can make worship about what I prefer the right songs or the right this or the right that and it's truly not about any of that it's about Christ and Christ alone so, Father, I, I praise you that you put this in your word for us to understand. And also, you tell us and show us the significance of, of worshiping you on a genuine basis. If we know Christ, if we have that relationship with you in the first place. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us this challenge and this reminder as to what genuine worship actually is. And may we do so. May we as your people continue to worship you on a genuine basis. Because when we do, it is life-changing. You are life-changing. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.